Hey, welcome to the show tonight. We got a great show tonight. It's a, seri- it's a show we're doing on a serious note. Um, my name is Charlotte. I'm your hostess for the next hour. And this is California Haunts Radio. We are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, www.californiahaunts.org. And everybody who knows me knows that I'm a real journalist in my real life. So I like to mix it up here on the show and uh, take on some newsworthy topics. And this is something. Tonight's topic is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, I had two cousins, two brothers. One was a very successful na- naval aviator. The other one went through college, did some s- sailboat stuff, worked in a bank. They lived up in, they, they lived in Oregon. And... Um, my uh, naval aviator cousin, we were all about the same age. Uh, the the, the um, naval aviator was about two years older than I was, uh, or three years older than I was at the time. And the younger one was uh, a year, year older. And um, anyhow, the naval aviator was doing time in the Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm. So he was patrolling uh, the Persian Gulf in an anti-submarine helicopter. So... Two days before Thanksgiving, my dad gets a phone call from Oregon, from my cousins, and it was the mother of the two boys. And because it was, you know, it was the holidays, I thought it was a holiday call. So I went ahead, picked up the extension, and was on the other end of the line. And before we even said hello, my cousin said, "My, my son is dead. And my first thought was, well, he probably got shot down. You know, something happened. And to my utter shock, she said, no, it's my other son. And I thought, well, you know, the first thought, first thing you think is what happened. You know, I'm thinking car accident, something like that. And she went on to tell us that, um, my, my Navy cousin had gone to pick him up so they could all meet for an early dinner. And the house was messy. The place where he was living was messy. They didn't know that he had lost his job. And my, cus- my cousin offered to buy him, take him shopping and buy clothes so they could go to dinner. He laughed and said, yeah, sure, why not? Went into the bathroom shut the door and my cousin said that right a couple minutes after that he heard a shotgun go off went running into the bathroom 
and my cousin had put the gun in his mouth and taken his own life. Um, I've spent 35 years coming to terms. You know, there's not a day goes by that I don't think about him and what, you know, what had gone wrong, how nobody knew that he was in that type of mental state to do that. And like I said, not only goes by, that's why I wanted to get this gentleman on. He, he um, he's written a book about his life after, before and after the suicide of his brother. And so um, I thought it was an important topic to have on the show. So without further ado, I'm going to bring him in and he can tell you his story. Hello. Hi, Charlotte. How are you tonight? Good. How are you, Carl? I'm well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Sure, no problem. Tell me a little bit about you. I, I did do some research online, so I, I know a little bit about your story, but my listeners don't. I am a third-generation fine art dealer, uh, originally from Philadelphia, and we are now, now working in Florida as well. We specialize in American and European 17th through 21st century paintings, drawings, watercolors, and occasional sculpture. Um, I am not sure what else there is about me <laughs> that you want to know. Uh, I've got a great family, uh, you know, a fabulous wife, kids, granddaughter, and daughter-in-law. And um, I've just been very blessed and very lucky. Um, had a few bumps in the road along the way, obviously. And uh, it's one of the things we're here to talk about tonight. Yes, yes. So tell me about you. You, you lost your father. I lost my father. Uh, in 1973, um, had lost a brother to suicide when I was 16, only eight years prior. And, um, you know, this, both of those things rocked my life. Uh, my mom lived to be 94, mm -hmm. and my father wasn't so lucky. He was 58, and the shock of losing a son you know, was just too much for him to bear. Tell me, I know it's painful for you, but can you tell me about uh, what was going on with, uh, with your brother or how, how that came to be? It was a real shock. We had no signs, no forbearing of what was coming. Uh, he, uh, he seemed to be very happy and, and, you know, overtly active and friendly, great social life. And one night um, he just didn't come home. He was at night school at Temple University. And, you know, we thought that was really out of character. So the next morning, there was a malaise in the, in the house, and I didn't want to go to school. And, of course, I had to go to school. I was a senior in high school. And I went to school, and um, I'm in the auditorium at the assembly, and I get called up to the stage. There's been an emergency. Uh, well, you know, I needed to go home. So fortunately, they didn't tell me what it was, but when I got home, and I had driven to school that day. I was 16. Um, I, my other brother, my eldest brother, told me that uh, Bruce had killed himself. And it's like my whole world went dark in an instant. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, not coming home the night before, we figured, well, maybe he was out with friends or maybe there was a car accident when I heard there was an emergency. Right. No clue. Nothing at all. I didn't see this coming at all. And neither did my parents or my other brother. And how did he do it? Can, can I ask? Uh, sure. He uh, hanged himself um, actually on the fourth floor of the gallery, a family business. Wow. wow. I'm so and sorry. Thanks. 
Thanks. Yeah, my father was the one who found them. That's incredible. What the, I, I know it's a shock. It's, it's, it's a real shock when that happens because it happens so suddenly. Um, what, what happened? I mean, what pe- a lot of people don't realize too, like, like, uh, like, um, like, like your book that you wrote, the after effects when, when this happens. I mean, it affects everybody in the family. It does. Um, and families can either pull together or pull apart. And, you know, the initial um, reaction is shock. And then anger, and then the question mark as to why, you know, what, what happened? What, you know, what, why didn't we see something? Um, you know, and then you feel guilt. And then mm. you try to come to, to peace with it, which takes a professional intervention. It's, it's too big a monster to deal with on your own, as much as you think you can. You can't. It's like, yeah, and I, I agree with you 100%. It, it's, it's really hard on the families. You know, it's like, you know, there's a lot of things about suicide where people say that the person that commits suicide is just being selfish. But it's not all that either. I mean, they're, they're obviously having some, some type of problem that they need help with. But the families don't, because the closest people to them don't see it because they, they can put on a, a good front in front of the right. family members. That's correct. I mean, you know, you never know really what's going on in some someone's head, what their demons are, and what might be something that they don't want to talk about, feel ashamed about, or just are overwhelmed with and, and can't deal with it. So what yeah. happened with you guys? Can, can you tell me that? The progression? We, what happened um, afterwards? We, yeah, well, once we, my mom had just gotten out of the hospital with major surgery, mm-hmm. um, and we tried to deal with it as best we could, but... Um, I had my, my parents had clergy that they leaned on for help and my brother had counseling and I had the benefit of a psychoanalysis, which saved my life. I mean, I didn't think I needed it. And when the doctor told me, um, that I was a great candidate for psychoanalysis, I figured, oh my God, I must be really sick. <laughs> Woody Allen's been doing this for 15 years and he's still at it. <laughs> so, um, but then I realized he said, you have to be intelligent. You have to be analytical and you said you're really a good candidate for this and you know thank god i did it because it really it, it gave me perspective um it helped me to cope basically and to deal with it did you blame yourself at all um only in the sense that i didn't see anything you know that maybe i missed something but mm-hmm. no one saw anything i mean you, you really it, it's human nature to blame yourself for something like that for failure to have interceded somehow but you can't if you don't see it coming you don't see any no signs you know um nothing nothing at all so uh, it, it's you know the guilt is there initially but then you work through it and you realize that um it's not you it was something that was beyond your control and your your whole family went through this right i mean everybody was was, was going was going through this process absolutely uh our immediate family our aunts and uncles cousins everybody you know, it's an impact that spreads everywhere. Mm. I understand. Believe me, I, I do understand. And I'm so, sorry for your losses as well. Thank you. Thank you. Was, like I said in the intro, you know, there's still days that I, I sit here and wonder, you know, what, what could have done, what, what could have been done to prevent it? Or, or, or you wonder if the person was still alive, what, what they could be. Right. You know, what they could have become in their life. But... To have, you know, I, I can't imagine becoming that dis- that despondent to be able to have the, the guts to take my own life. I just can't. Yeah. So whatever, whatever the, he was going through, 
was was something I just beyond what what I could think about. I agree. At the time. So, t- tell me what happened. Uh, you know, as you grew older, because you, of course your father died, and so you had to take over the art, the art business, correct? Right. Uh, my brother stayed with me for what he said was going to be nine months, but it turned out to be nine years. But in that first year, I came out swinging and learned a business as as best I could and ran it. And um, you know, I, I knew I had to do that because with the impending leaving, you know, my brother leaving the business. Mm-hmm. I would have been on my own completely. So I just, I was like Michael Corleone. I came out and ran a business in a year and uh, it was tough. It was very difficult, you know, but I was grateful to my brother for the time that he did spend there and for what he taught me. Mm-hmm. So then you, um, oh, look, everybody does that. You get on with your life, even though you got these, these, these background thoughts, you know, it's always going to be with you. So um, you, you got married, had children of your own, right? Right. Correct. And uh, I've been very blessed and grateful for all of that. You know, this is a, a, it's a scar that stays with you. It's emblematic of who you are and it's, it's what you do with it afterward Mm -hmm. um, that makes a big difference. And I decided to to write this book, which took decades because I would write it, put it down too painful, come back to it. My wife would tell me if it's too painful, don't do it. And I'd say, no, I need to do it. This is something I want to leave as a legacy for our kids. And you know, ultimately use it as a tool to pay it forward by taking my darkest days and doing something to help someone else, hopefully prevent someone from taking their life or help a family who's been through it so that they, you know, they they have a sense of um, that there is help for them and there is a way through this. Not that it's easy. It's not. But it's a battle, you know, and it stays with you. And um, it was an obligation that I felt that I had something I really wanted to do. And, you know, my, our kids would never know my brother or my father. So mm-hmm. this, this was a way of, of kind of um, sharing their lives with them. And um, when you talk about working, you're working to, to get through it, what do you mean? Well, you know, when, and there was another point in the book where I was, my wife would say to me, you're intellectualizing. I'm not feeling it. And your readers aren't going to feel it. So if you, you know, if it's too hard or you can't be genuine with your feelings and let them through, you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. And I realized that she was right. And then I I decided to just open up and and let my feelings through. And then it became three-dimensional. I knew it had been flat before that because I was kind of emotionless Mm -hmm. writing the book because it was painful. Um, And then I had an editor who helped me and she, she, I, I looked for a long time to get a publisher and everybody said, no, it's too personal. We don't want to touch this. I kept thinking, of course it's too personal. <laughs> it's, it was the whole point. So they gave me an editor who in this one publishing house who got it. And she said, we want you to show it, not tell it. We want you to rewrite it movie style. Well, I heard movie and I got excited. And I said, what do you mean show it, not tell it? She said, we want dialogue. So they went back and rewrote the whole book with dialogue after the editor who, showed me how to do it she didn't tell me and she was great so then it came to life i mean the characters were such in the book that people said i feel like i know too much about your family or i feel like i missed something or i feel like i'm part of your family i mean it really it really became a work alive and it had impact so i knew that it would reach people and would help people so that was the thing i had to work myself through over a period of years Mm -hmm. to get through it to get to that point where i could actually do it 
in a lot of ways, like me, me being a journalist and all, that's how I express myself is by writing. So when I go through a real hard period in my life, that's something I'll do is just sit down at the computer and just start writing away because it's, it's medicinal because you get that, you, you, you get that energy out. It's, it's cathartic. Yeah. It yes. definitely is. You know, it's yeah. when I've been doing these interviews, radio, television, and journal interviews since the end of 08 when the book originally came out. Mm-hmm. And they're tough. I mean, it takes you back to day one, you know, the ground zero. But, you know, if it doesn't, then it's not really, you. you I'm not going to get to your audience um, if I don't show my feelings or express the depth of what I've gone through and what I'm feeling, even now. Right. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. So did your family um, have any qualms about you writing the book at all? Because like, like you say, you essentially wrote it about your experiences. Well, uh, my dad and my brother were gone. My mom got to see the book and she was thrilled and she just thought it was terrific. My wife thought it was great. Um, the kids were very young at that point. But, you know, uh, everybody who's read it, you know, it's very complimentary to me. I, I don't have much of an ego. Um, you know, I always say, you sure, really, was it that good? You know, I'll go back and read a chapter here and there after all these years. And I look at it and say, did I write that? Wow, that's really good. <laughs> so, um, I could not put a composition together in high school to save my life. But this was wow. after losing my brother. And I didn't really care. You know, I was not aiming academically at all. I just didn't care um, until I had something to say. And how long did it take you to write it? About 10 years, maybe longer. Okay. Decade and a half. Nothing wrong with that. No. Could have been 20 years, actually. You know, it just, it took so long because I would start to write it and I I couldn't. I'd have to put it down. But honestly, if I had kept at it at that point, I probably would not have had to rewrite it because it was full of emotion. But then I just let it go. You know, you can only do what you can do when it's time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So your, your goal is to help people. Are, are you wanting any kind of suicide hotlines or anything, talking to people or anything like that? Or is it no. just being through the book and doing talks like this? Yep, exactly. Uh, I don't have a suicide hotline or anything, but, you know, my ears are always open. And if someone's in need, I'm there to listen or to help mm-hmm. or guide somebody. Uh, if I see somebody in distress, you know, I, I do whatever I could to influence them to, to live their life instead of losing it. If somebody um, comes to you, like you say, you know, you're trying to influence them to, to live their life instead of losing it. What's the first piece of advice you give them, or the help, you know, or the, or the helping hand? Well, to get help if they're having a problem, because I'm not a professional counselor or anything mm-hmm. like that. I don't have those credentials. Um, I have the experience of having lived through it and survived it, which is big, um, unfortunately. But uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell people that there's help for them out there. They're not alone. There is love for them and that they, they need to seek help to try and get through this, not to try and do it on their own. For you as a teenager, how old were you when this happened? 16. Wow. You were just going through your coming into yep. adulthood stuff. So yep. how, you know, and all those emotions that go with that. So how did that, you know, what kind of emotions were you having after it, you know, with this i mean it must have caused Um, a lot of stress on you it did i mean you know obviously grief and then anger and then guilt and then confusion and anxiety um i was riddled with anxiety and my parents were heads up 
enough to notice and got me professional help. And the psychiatrist that they were very close to and friendly with couldn't treat me because he was too close to our family. Right. They recommended a, a great doctor um, who was just incredible and really helped me learn how to cope. Because you, you never get over it. You only learn to live with it as best right. you can. Right. But at that young age for you, that, that was especially, like I said, you know, at 16, you're just going through your changes where, where you're, you're not quite an adult yet. But I you're, definitely you know, was you're, not an adult yet. Right. Yeah, you're, you're a couple <laughs> of years away, and then this happens, and it's a lot yeah. of emotion to go through. It is. It is. Changes your life in an instant. Did you lose the desire to go to school and stuff like that? Because I know people that have gone through trauma like that just don't want to even function. Well, I did initially. I mean, for a couple of weeks, I was home. Um, you know, we're Jewish, and we, we did a, a, a shiva where after it, it three or four days, but I still, I couldn't go back to school um, for a couple of weeks. And when I went back, I, I felt like all the eyes were on me, like, hey, that's the kid whose brother killed himself. You know, and I would hear these voices, and I didn't know whether those murmurs were real or if mm -hmm. they were in my head. Um, it didn't really matter. For me, they were real. You know, the, the judgment, which is something you have no right to exert on someone uh, or their family, you know, someone who's taken their life. And you can't say, well, he shouldn't have done that. And he was this or that. You have no right to do that. Judgment is the worst thing you can do. Um, you know, just, it's not right. And the other thing, too, I, I would think, because as a caregiver for my both elderly parents, too, is that after stuff like that happens or the death happens, you have those thoughts, I should have, would have, could have. Of course. You know, you wish you would have seen something. You should have been there. Should have listened to something. But, you know, it's hard to do when there's nothing. There's no sign. Right, right, right. So did he go to the same school that you did? Or was he older, already out? He was already out. Uh, he was in, in, in the beginning stages of college. And uh, I was in a senior year in high school. Okay. Okay. Wow. I just can't, you know, I, I, well, I can because I went through it. But I was already in my 20s. But I can't imagine having that happen to me, you know, at, at, at that age that you were at and then having to wrap my head around it. Right. Right. No, it's, it's just like, um, a completely foreign concept. Um, you know, we, we had heard something later that at night school, one of the teachers, the word got back to us somehow through, I think one of Bruce's friends, uh, and nobody really talked about it, but they said something about it. He had inquired about, suicide or something so uh, whether it was the ideation or just uh yeah i we don't know what you know when it never went anywhere we never really found any answers further to that no one no one would say anything you know so maybe there was a bit of information out there that could have saved them sure 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 did you have i mean i mean did you because of course you want to know what happened so was there any kind of investigation with the police or anything you know involved no. with this no, nothing like that. It's just, uh, no, I think my parents just wanted this over as quickly as possible to move on, try and move on with their lives. Um, because, you know, yeah, you just don't know. You know, right. was there foul play? Was somebody else there? Who knows? It, you know, and would it bring them back anyhow? No. So. True. That's true. I know I've talked to people that have... Um attempted suicide off the Golden Gate Bridge in the past. And they immediately, the, 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 you know, the, the, they, 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 I get the same story every time. The second they, they let go of that rail, when they go they over it, they immediately it. regret it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I have heard that time and time again as well. But like with a shotgun or even a hanging, it technically it happened so fast, you know, the, 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 yeah. the, the, you're just like that, you're gone. Right. And we had wondered that ourselves, you know, whether at that particular instant there was a change of heart and it was too late, mm-hmm. or change of mind and it was too late. It's just, don't know. Yeah. Just don't know. You're for, yeah. You're forever going to wonder that. Yeah. So um, as you grew up, you know, as you like you say, the, the, the kids, you know, were, were pointed the whispers in the hallways and stuff. What else did you go? Because you had all those high school years yet to go, you know, like two years left in high school. So, well, no, I was a senior in high school. So it was okay, my okay. last year. Okay. Um, and then I went to Temple University for two years until I got thrown out. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other story. <laughs> and then I got reinstated and I, I, my parents said, this school's too big for you. Um, and I wound up going to Oglethorpe College in Atlanta, which had about 1,200 kids, and it was great. And, you know, I took that haunt with me, but um, I just kind of shoved it to the back of my mind and created a scenario where I, I sort of made myself believe that Bruce was in Vietnam and on a, on a, a spec ops issue, uh, on, a, on a mission that, you know, that's um, obviously not real, but it was a way for me to insulate myself from the pain. And I wound up on the Spanish Honor Society, on the Dean's List, the two years, I really realized that I had to make something of myself, for myself and for my parents as well. And I did, but when I came back after I graduated, um, all the realities start to come back. You know, you move home and all these these uh, memories come back. And um, that's when I started to kind of have out of body experiences, not in a good way. I mean, they would just come on randomly where I would just feel myself leaving my body. And, you know, it's this feeling unreal, as I used to call it. And it was it was frightening. Um, I didn't do drugs. And this was something that, that sounded like an LSD thing, but without the drugs. So and that's when I finally got help. And uh, it took a while. But I realized by suppressing all my feelings, I was literally leaving my body and, and not dealing with it. Now, when you say out of body experiences, usually the people that have them, because I do paranormal work, it's usually at night just before you fall asleep or just before they fall asleep. What was happening to you? That was a different. I've had those too, but that's different uh, with with time travel and all that stuff. But this was just random where they would come on and the anxiety would be so intense that I would just feel like I wasn't even in my body anymore. And I, I just, the sounds were different. I felt like I was looking through a television from the inside out. Hmm. Very weird. Very that is weird. weird. Not, not a good feeling. <laughs> I know people have dreams like that, but I never heard that for an out-of-body experience. I've had flying dreams and dreams like that too, but um, much better. <laughs> wow. This this was like uncontrollable. And uh, what would so, you see during these experiences? I mean, yeah, I, I would, would just, I don't know. I'd be outside of myself, but I would still be inside myself as well. It's very weird. I just, you know, my, my hearing and my vision would kind of contract and I just felt like I wasn't real. Okay. It's hard yeah, to I would, explain. I would think that would be stress, something yeah. stress related. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or anxiety yeah, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So then you decided to seek help at that point. And, and, and what happened when, when you, when you went to get the help about it and you, you were telling people about it? Well, 
it, it took a while, you know, for me to settle into a routine four days a week or five days a week or however many years. And I knew because I could see my, myself getting better. And the doctor said, we have to get to the core of all these these issues and mm -hmm. unravel this ball of anxiety, a, a thread at a time, and then kind of rebuild, which is what we did. Um, you know, I didn't tell too many people I was going for therapy because in, in, at that point in time, in the early 70s, it was still um, something that was like, oh, you must be really sick, you know, if you're going for, to a psychiatrist. Right. Um, but, you know, that's how you get well. Yeah, and it's a lot different now, I think, because there's, there's a lot of tra uh, trauma specialists out there that, that people can go to. Absolutely. I had a friend who lost her son um, to an accident with a gun. But it's a similar it's a similar thing where um, his sister was there with him at the time. But mm -hmm. he had he had two younger two younger siblings and they're still having a lot of issues dealing with it. And it's it's been like two, three years later. You know, they were they're all in their teens. And so the they're they're seeing trauma specialists and, and all this is going on too, you know. And then I think that's what people need. And I think like you say, people don't realize that they need it. They think they can just push on from it, you know, and, and, and get on with their lives, but it's not like that. No, you can't be heroic or stoic about something like this. It's just, it's self-defeating. And, you know, we all tried it, of course, mm -hmm. um, and all failed. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's, it's just too big an issue and too complex um, you have to try and undertake on your own. I know I didn't tell anybody anything either. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I'm a person that, that, that that's a push on regardless kind of person. So that's why, like I said in the intro, even today I, I have issues, you know, where I'm thinking about him or I'll dream about him or something will come up, you know, and, and it'll automatically just switch switch on the tears or whatever with him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's normal. I mean, there are a lot of triggers out there. Um, and you know, for years when the anniversary of his death would come around, mm -hmm. I'd kind of stay strong and tough and, you know, not feel it and block it out. Well, you know, you wind up with a headache or you wind up with stomach problems. Or you wind up feeling dizzy. They, you're going to pay for it one, one way or another uh, because you just, your emotions are going to say, you know, hey, pal, this happened. It's real. And we're going to make you feel it. And for years, my wife would say, you know, every year you deny this, you avoid it, you suppress it. And, you know, it, it's, it's, ugly you don't want to face it but mm -hmm. until the tears come and you feel your feelings you get walloped with all kinds of symptoms absolutely um so you you got counseling and then your father passes away right so what um, happened? uh he passed away while i was in therapy and okay. um you know fortunately i still had some some therapy left to do and then of course that was a whole separate topic but um, I was grateful that I was where I, where I was at the time in my therapy because it was a, a tremendous help. I mean, again, an issue that was like we were really close. I mean, our family was extremely close. So and my father was my hero. He was my mentor. He was everything. And then you um, you were, you took over the business, but you were you were already involved in the business, right? I was point. involved only for three years when my dad passed away. Okay. So I was kind of new at it. And uh that's why my, my brother said he would stay for nine months and he was leaving. He was burned out. He had been there. He went to Wharton. He was a stockbroker, um, but he had, he had had it. He wanted to go do something else. Mm -hmm. But he stayed longer, you know, thankfully. And, um, and we're very close to this day. Well, it's good to have a close family, though. 
It's really good to be close. It is. What do you think, you know, looking back, and I know, I know you probably hear this all the time, and question-wise is, that you could have maybe done, you know, like I said, the should have, would have, could have. We're just we're, we're going to play uh, that game for a second. What do you think, looking back, that you could have maybe watched out for? Um, you know, today, I, I'm much more attuned to it. If I were to go back today, I would look for something subtle. Um, I, we, I would have more communication and talk and say, hey, you know, what's going on? Um, I know you're at night school. Uh, are you okay with this? This was a kid who could take a car apart and put it back together again. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, I'd have a fire in a carburetor or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he could anything. I mean, his mechanical skills were phenomenal. My father was going to set up a frame shop on the fourth floor of the gallery for him, making frames, which was an integral part of our business. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get that far. But um, so I, I, knowing what I know today, I would try and pry something out of him. And say, hey, you know, what's going on? Tell me your worst day. Tell me your worst demons. What what's in your head? What's what scares the hell out of you? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what what what? Just talk. Because I think talking I, is critical. I know. Uh, the similar thing happened with my cousins was that she would, because they were living. I think they had one point moved down Southern California, then moved back up to Oregon. So they would talk to him on the phone. And every time they talked to him, what would he say? Oh, everything's fine. It's all cool. It's all good. You know, they had no idea that he had been fired from his job. You know, and uh, he was going through a low point. So I think communication is a lot of it. But, I mean, not every family has the communication. And, again, you know, people that are having, I don't want to say mental issues, but but people like that are good actors. They're good at hiding well. Yeah, they hide it really well. Yeah. And it's sometimes just a compensation for something they're ashamed of. You know, Mm -hmm. like your cousin lost a job. Um, But, you know, that's nothing to be ashamed of. But in their mind, it's big. It shows failure. It shows, uh, I don't know, something that, you know, they're going to get criticized or judged for. And, you know, it's a shame that people feel that way. Well, that's something I always felt, too, because when you look at the, when you look at, that uh, you know what happened on, on on the face of it, he had lost his job. The other cousin said, "Okay, don't worry about it. I'll take you to Sears and buy you clothes." Yeah. And to me, and you know, God forbid they get mad at me for talking about this, but for me, that would be the ultimate slap in the face if he's feeling that way. Right, it might be demeaning. Yeah, and that's no. why he he probably went in and you know and pulled that trigger. It's nobody's fault. It's just no. circumstances. Right. Exactly. Behind it. So how did you how did your mother get through all this too? I mean, you know, we t- we talked about you, but but what about your mother? Um, we had a lot of friends and a lot of family near us, which was hugely helpful. And you know, my mom had just gotten out of the hospital, so when she healed, um, and and, and bad enough losing a son that was mm-hmm. horrible, and we all banded together to help her because we knew. Uh, nobody initially nobody really talked about it in the house because it was like the the elephant in the room. And um, then we all started to talk about it because we realized, you know, our, we, Alan and I knew what our parents were going through and they, mm-hmm. they knew what we were going through. And everyone was kind of walking on eggshells and being very careful and uh, very, very kind and, and um, close and supportive and emotional. But it gets to a point where everybody has to start living their own life. And my mom was amazing. 
So the strength was incredible. So we all literally pulled together and tried to work our way through this as best we could. And after my dad passed away, my, my mother would tell my brother and myself, you know, she's lost the will to live. She doesn't want to live anymore. And you know, Alan and I looked at each other and said, you know, and, you know, and I was married at that point. So Alan and I and Alan were just like, hey, we got to we got to get her through this. We can't. This is not tolerable. You know, we have to help her. And we all hung around, you know, and, and we said, Mom, we really need you. You know, you can't give up now. This mm -hmm. is this is we need you. We need you at work. We need you in our personal lives. You know, we need you emotionally and um, you can't check out. It's just, you know, and so we threw a little guilt at her, but it worked. I mean, because it was really true. Everything we said was absolutely you know, sound advice and, and, and you know, it was truthful. It was honest. Well, it, it, it's like you say, it, 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 people don't realize what a ripple effect it has. You know, it's not only it's not only the person committing suicide, it's it's it's, it's the immediate family members, the cousins, you know, like you were saying. I mean, it's just it's a ripple effect that can go on for years and years and years. And it's not something they do alone. They take their family and friends with them. A little piece. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, they just it's and it's not a selfish act right? Uh, because people in this who do this nine times out of ten don't realize what they're doing or feel in such a state of darkness that they can't they can't escape it. So, you, you know, you can't blame them. Um, you just hope and you wish that they would be open enough to say something. So a little glimmer of light would get in there and you could get them help. And then, like, you know, I know from covering crimes in courts, um, you know, there, there are people that do leave, you know, uh, notes, you know, because they are asking for help. But again, like in your brother's case or my cousin's case, you know, there, there was nothing. And it's just it's just hard to wrap your head around. It is indeed. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see signs where someone will drop out of their social life or they'll become reclusive. They'll give away their possessions um, and their whole interest in anything they had just evaporates and they just go into a, a, a reclusive state. You know, and those are little things that are signs and hints. And people have asked me, well, what do you do if you see something like that with, with a loved one or a friend or something? Like I said, you try and talk to them and reach out to them if they shut down call their family members. And if they don't help, call 911, you know, get some help for them. And, you know, if they're talking about killing themselves and they, you know, a lot of people, oh, I'm going to kill myself. You know, a lot of people say that, but mm -hmm. they don't say it with sincerity. And the worst you can do is be a little overzealous and embarrass somebody. But the best thing you can do is save a life. When you talk about signs, you spoke about those. Are, are there any other signs people should look out for? Um, well, you know, suicide is often precipitated with depression. So if you see somebody literally dropping out of society or, you know, they're in the group of friends that you're in, um, or family member, um, they start giving away their possessions, you know, and nothing means anything to them anymore. And those are, those are subtle, but they're not so subtle. They have a deeper meaning. And it's something people should be aware of if they see someone doing that, that's a loved one or a friend who suddenly has a change of heart and shows signs of like just kind of dropping out. Um, it's something you need to pay attention to. You say it took you um, 10, you know, 10 years plus to, to uh, write this book. What has been the um, 
the uh, the audience response to this that you've gotten? How, how do people feel about it? People have told me they love it. You know that they were very grateful to have read it. Uh, felt very privileged to have known my family, um, and, and grateful. I, you know, I, I've done interviews that I get responses to and I get emails. People say thank you so much. Uh, I was really in a state of depression, and now I'm really going to try and go seek some help. And you know, knowing what you went through, what it causes your family and friends uh, when someone does that, it, it gives pause sometimes to someone who is thinking about it, but not really that serious, but mm-hmm. could be. So, you know, I've gotten emails, I've gotten thank yous, I've gotten, I've gotten great responses to it, which for me is everything in the world. Um, I always say, I feel like Schindler, I could have saved one more life. I may never know if I have or I haven't, but I've mm-hmm. thrown the, the rock out on the water, the pebble, and it's skimming along, creating its own waves. And that's pretty much the best I can hope for. When you talk about getting messages and emails, do they open up to you, you know, in any messages, like you say, you're not a professional counselor, but obviously they're going to open up to you because of your experiences. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it's just a thank you. Sometimes it's, you know, I, I had a sister and a brother who committed mm-hmm. suicide. And, you know, now I know that there's, there's help out there. I'll, if you got through it, I hope I'll be able to get through it. And, you know, thanking me for sharing my story and the guidance, because that way they know, they know that they're not alone. You know, this is, they're not the only ones in the world have gone through this, even though it seems like it when you're going through it. Um, there are more than a million people a year worldwide take their life. And that's a crazy epidemic statistic. Uh, in America alone, almost 50,000 people a year take their life, which is like, it's almost incomprehensible. Three times the amount of suicides than there are homicides in America. And it's like the 10th largest um, cause of death. In, in our country. Uh, and strangely enough, with the, the pandemic and all the isolation and lockdowns and everything else, even though you hear about a lot more suicides, mm-hmm. the rate actually went down from about 48,000 down to about 44,000, um, which is kind of inexplicable. We're not sure why. Um, maybe because people had more connection by Zoom things and by phone, right. and they were more gathered as families together rather than being out there in the open world separated. I don't know. Yeah, that is a good point. I would have thought that, you know, the people that, that were more alone would, would be more prone to, you yep. know, hit that depression level and, and the suicide would go up. But that, that, that's an interesting um, stat. What do you say to people who might even be contemplating suicide? Um, please don't do it. Think about it. Get some help. Talk to somebody. Your problems, which seem so insurmountable, um, could very well be just temporary. And suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. There's a lot of help out there today. There are suicide hotlines. There's 9-11. There's bartenders. There's hair salons. Anybody. I mean, go talk to somebody. Because as, as horrible as you think your life is, somebody else has it worse. And that's not to minimize someone's problems. But it is just to let them know that uh, life goes on. And there are there is help out there today. Lots of help. And for families, like like we talked about earlier, what what's out there for families? I mean, you know, families that are um, affected by this. That... Same, same thing. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's help. Uh, they're not alone. Uh, more people than they could even imagine have gone through this. That's not to to, to uh, standardize it by any means or or to justify it because it's it's horrible. I mean, it's it's a parent's worst nightmare, and 
it's just one of those things that is just, it's mind blowing. But there, as I said, there is help out there. People are not alone. And in today's world, there's much more of an emotional support system than there used to be, you know, decades and decades ago. Now, you mentioned um, in a quote I saw from another show that you had been on that once you got married and had children, you really started to, under, you know, kind of get a grip on, on what your mom and dad had gone through at the time. Yeah. When you have kids, you realize, like, you know, what if? God forbid. And when our kids were, we, we weren't sure how to tell our kids and exactly at what time about my brother. Um, so when we felt that they were old enough to understand, but not get freaked out, mm-hmm. we kind of explained it as gently as we could, because we wanted them to know that no matter what happens to them in this world, no matter what they do, we're there for them. We're their parents. We love them unconditionally. Uh, and that this is never, ever an option. There's always a better answer. That's, you know, we had to stress that point to make sure as insurance for us, as well as for them, that they know there's an avenue to get help, to talk to someone, that their emotions are acceptable and they need to be vented. That's, that's, that's really cool. That's really good. That's really good. So at what age did you tell your kids about what, what had happened? Because like you say, you, you were trying to decide when, when you were going to tell them. I think when they were about 13, 12, 13 or 14, when we thought they were old enough to comprehend um, and, and smart enough to understand uh, the ramifications of how that shatters a family. And because we were all very close as well. And just to prevent something like this from happening, they needed to know. Did you share the bed? Uh, no, you didn't because he, he was already in college. I'm sorry. Well, my mind. It's okay. Was he coming? I mean, was he still living at the house when he was going to college or was he living away? No, at home. Okay. He was at home okay. with us. Okay. So did you but, guys share a room? Did he have his own room? or how? how no, did that I shared, I, Bruce and I shared a room together. Okay. No, okay. I'm sorry. He had his own room. Alan okay. and I shared a room together. My eldest brother okay. and I. Okay. Okay. So like you say, you didn't notice anything when he was home at all. That, that, this, that he was having issues. No. You know, his army unit was supposed to go to Vietnam. Uh, we wondered if that's what did it because the television's broadcasting kids coming back in body bags and limbless mm-hmm. and, you know, but... We don't. We still don't know. I mean, it's just could have been a contributing factor. It might have been something else altogether. Understood. Completely understand. Um, do you think now, like, like, like we were talking about, how the awareness for suicide prevention is is a lot better than it was back in the seventies? How much do you think that that there's been improvements with that? I think there's been a tremendous improvement compared to where it was when I was growing up. Uh, the, the awareness is there. The education is there. I One of my goals for my book was to, and I'll still try and do it. I don't know if I'll be able to, but to have it in every middle school and high school in America and in colleges to be, be mandatory reading so that people would see what happens to a family and how a family gets shattered and how they have to battle their journey every day to pull back together to get back into the light from the darkness. And um, it's still one of my goals. I would love for this thing to be in libraries all over the country and um, in all over the world. So, because I know it would help people, you know, Absolutely, it's just, it's yeah. not a matter of money. It's just a matter of paying it forward. Do you think that, um, looking forward, like you say, you know, like looking forward in the future that, because you're, you're doing shows like this, are you, are you are doing lectures too? 
Um, I have done them, not lately, mm-hmm. um, but, but most often it's it's either radio, television, or journal interview. And um, I think there's a wider audience for that, you know, that I can reach more people by doing that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lectures are more localized. I mean, if someone asked me to do one, mm-hmm. um, sure, I would do it. But I think the, the media is a, is a broader way of getting the message out there. Okay. Now you say your family um, backed you, you know, for writing this book. Did you, did you speak to any counselors or anything before you wrote the book? No. I mean, I had gone through my own analysis, but no, this was all self-taught, if you will. Okay. Um, and I just, <laughs> I just did it. <laughs> As a journalist, I've got a couple books in the works and I, I, I can tell you guys out on Radio Land how difficult it is to even write a book because a journalist is trained to write small paragraphs. <laughs> and with a book, you have to write these long paragraphs, and it's agonizing for me. It takes forever because I feel like I'm having all these run-ons and everything because I'm trying to expand <laughs> these ideas in these huge paragraphs. So it's it's not an easy task to write a book, you know? No, um, it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's an epic endeavor. I've written three books. Oh, yeah? yeah my, my first book was Collecting and Care of Fine Art, uh, uh-huh. which I wrote. My brother and I used to give in the gallery uh, collector seminars. And I decided one day to write the book because I wanted the truth to be out there. There was so much hype about investing in art that half these things weren't true and the other half were true. So I wrote this book and Crown published it for me in New York in 1981. And um, that was my first foray into really writing a book. And it was, it was great. It sold out. And um, then I wrote this book, Baderfield, which is really Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide, which is really my heart. This is the one that means the most to me. You know, the art books are, are kind of documentary, if they will. Right. But the story of, of what we went through is way more important to me. Um, and again, it's not about money. It's about principle and about emotions and, and survival. So right. then I wrote this book. And after I wrote Peter Field, I had another book inside me that I knew I had to wait. Um, you'll like this. It's called Waking Dreams, The Subtle Reality. And it's about episodes of synchronicity and signs that I've had from the universe uh, over the years uh, that, you know, you know, when you die, your spirit lives on. I mean, it's just, just you we're in this dimension now, but life goes on in a different form. Um, and I had to wait years before I could put that out because I knew people would think I had three heads and I, mm-hmm. and I might lose credibility for the Bader Field book and the art book. So but when is that one coming I, out? When is that one I'm coming sorry? out? When, when is that book coming out? Or is it out it's already? out. It's okay. out. I, didn't I, see it on, to, I just bought the right... I, I just bought the rights back to it, so I have to have it uh, put back up on Amazon and okay. uh, where it is. So I have that's another job I have to do. Well, when that one comes out, we're gonna, when you get it back up, we're going to have to get you on again and talk about it. Okay, okay. Talk about those experiences. You know, um, like like we talked about the people that 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 jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. You know how how they immediately um, regret it. And I know I did some research back when uh, I, I was working for a newspaper and. I was talking to a couple of college professors and stuff, and we were talking about head-on when, when people do head-on collisions and how they feel a lot. The majority of those are suicides. Um, that was a shock to me, you know, because I was just, just you, you you don't think about that, but right. that's that's what they had told me. And like I said, it just it just boggles the mind that somebody could get that that mindset to, to even do that, you know, to go right. across the road or a freeway or something to do that. You know, I guess someone's got to be in that state of, I've had it, that's it, I'm done. 
and they just do it. I mean, it's just, it doesn't seem, uh, well, it's not rational. I mean, so it mm-hmm. doesn't seem rational to us, but it's, it's, it's incongruous to the way we think. Now, jumping back a little bit, your father, what kind of personality did your father have? He was amazing. He was a dynamo. Um, if it, He was my role model and always told me, you can do whatever you want in life. If you think it, you can create it. You have to work for it. But you can set your goals as high as you want, and you'll get there. But you have to work for it. I mean, he was he was incredible. I mean, he never stopped for a minute. And uh, when he'd walk into a room, the room would light up. I mean, literally. People would just gravitate toward him. He was a, a, a generous, kind, listening dynamo. I mean, he was just... I was blessed to have him, even though it was only, you know, 58 when he passed away. Mm-hmm. I was grateful for the years that I had with him because they were they were gold. And and what happened um, after, after your brother committed suicide? What happened with him? Did his personality change or did he just, you know, buckle down and just just. No, it did change. He um, I remember the first time I was back in the gallery and he came in. He came in that morning wearing sunglasses and this just slammed the door. The whole building shook. He was so filled with rage and anger. And that was the place where he found him up on the fourth floor. And I don't know. I don't know how he did it. I mean, to mm-hmm. this day, I just, uh, I know, I, I don't know how he did it. Um, and it took a long time for the smile to come back, you know, but after a while, it, it took a few years. Um, and he, you could see his personality coming through, but it was still tinged with this scar. Mm-hmm. knowing the pain and mm-hmm. um you know it's just you don't get over it you know it's just and i think he felt more responsible than anybody that that he should have seen something um and uh, you know finding him on the fourth floor is just that's a memory that you can never erase no because you're forever going to see him that way right that's one thing with the paranormal investigating that i do when the psych I don't know how you believe in that stuff, but when the psychics go in and they they talk with the families and stuff and you realize that some of these families still have visions of them like they were when they when they were killed or when they died. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when when my at my dad's funeral, um at the at the funeral parlor before the, the ceremony, um we could go in and see him and I opted not to. Because I mm-hmm. wanted to remember him in life, not laying in a coffin. Right. Um, because that I, does etch in your memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, it was not something I wanted to remember that way. Right. I, 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 I understand completely. Um, what about your brother? How, how did he do it? How did he cope? Same way. He went for help and uh, worked it out as best he could on his end. You know, we, we, we still to this day, we talk about Bruce. And, um, you know, his personality and what, I mean, he was a real people person too. He's incredible. Um, just, you know, with the fast cars and the Marlboro cigarettes rolled up under his his t-shirt, you know, and, uh, (laughs) typical kid from the, from the, you know, sixties, uh, early sixties, anyhow. And, um, it's just, he was a real character. He's a funny guy. Um, I had gotten in trouble a couple of times. And he was right there for me, you know, in a rescue position. So um, he too was my hero. You know, we were really close. You know, kids That's... do stupid stuff and then somebody rescues them. 
That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss and the loss Thank of your you. brother and your father. I, I really you. am. Thank you. Like I said, I, feel, I completely understand. Thank you. And I'm sorry for your losses as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to any of this? I think we've covered just about everything. Or is there anything yeah, I missed? I, um, I think you got it all. I mean, I, my only message is if anyone is in, in emotional stress, uh, please go talk to somebody. Don't give up. Don't quit. There are people out there who can help you. You're not alone for sure. And you're loved. And, um, you know, the suicide is, is not an option. I mean, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, you got a life to live. It's a gift. Every day you get up is a gift and you can't abuse that gift. You have to live your life to the fullest because whatever happens today, there's always tomorrow. Absolutely. Well, Dan, Carl, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming on. And you, uh, when you get your pleasure. other book set up, I would love to have you on again to talk about that as well. I, I will Those be in touch as soon as it's back know? up and running. Sounds great. But thank you so much for telling your story. And I'm actually, I'm actually going to order your book because I, I would like to read yeah. it. I, I think you. it'll be helpful for me as well. Um, but uh, you have a good evening. And Thanks. again, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate My it. My pleasure. You as well. All thank right. you so much for you having me. Have a good day. All Thanks, right. Riley. You yep. too. Thank you. Okay, well, that was Carl David, and uh, he had a story to tell, uh, similar to something that happened to me uh, in my 20s. But uh, it is sad. It is sad when suicide occurs, you know, because it does does have that, that uh, ripple effect. Anyhow, we'll be back to paranormal stuff on Monday. We'll be back at the same time, 6.30 p.m. and uh, Pacific time. And uh, it was great you guys came and joined us for the show. I appreciate it, and I appreciate Carl coming on. And hopefully, again, he will come on again. Uh, if you uh, feel it, the need, uh, you can donate to our PayPal me down there to help me keep this thing uh, up and running so we can get uh, more and more interesting guests and get our technology up even better. Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with five people anyway because I'm trying to build up the following on this as much as I possibly can so that we can get some advertisers and get some other things going on. We do have a Patreon that I'm going to start running uh, the link down at the bottom of the page starting Monday, and you guys can join for uh, $5 level. There's a, there's a $20 level, and then there's a uh, $40 level, where which is kind of cool, where you get all kinds of goodies. Plus, like this gentleman has a book out, and you know most of the people we have on have book out, books out. So you can join at that level, and once a month you can pick out the book of your choice, and I will order it from Amazon for you. So that's, that's kind of a cool deal. But uh, some of these shows will be up on Patreon, and some of the pre-recorded shows that we do will air will air early, kind of like Discovery Plus, right? Everything will air like, like two, three, four days early before they actually air on uh, YouTube. So you get the opportunity to do that, and uh, and, so, and and there will be one-on-ones with me where you can ask me about anything you want, and uh, that kind of stuff going on. So check out the Patreon, and uh, like I said, I'll have a link up up to that because we're ready to go with that. Anyhow, I will see you guys on Monday. Have a good weekend, and let me get ready to close this out here. Push the right buttons. Okay, and I will see you guys on Monday. Bye. <laughs>